Uhuru. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show broadcast live Tuesday, 12 p.m. on Black Power 96.3, WBPULP, St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. You can follow us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. That's uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. My name is Baby Simpson. We have a great show today. Every week, Reparations in Action discusses some of the most pressing issues of these times of a colonial system that is in profound crisis. We sum up events as white people in solidarity with the African Revolution through the eyes of the African working class and the political theory of African internationalism. Under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party, we believe reparations is a question that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to begin by saluting Black Power 96.3 WBPULP in St. Petersburg and the African People's Education and Defense Fund, or the APEDF, which is the nonprofit whose work, who guide, which guides the work of this radio station. And the mission statement of the African People's Education and Defense Fund is to address the grave disparities the African or Black community faces in human rights, economic development, education, health, and health care. And um, I also want to begin uh, just by saluting Chairman Omalia Shatella, the founder and leader of the Uhuru Movement, Chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, for coming up with African internationalism, for leading the African Revolution for over 50 years, as well as uh, Chairwoman Penny Hess of the African People's Solidarity Committee, who uh, wasn't able to join us today, and my co-host and engineer, Jesse Neville, Chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. So um, Uhuru, on Friday of last week, news broke of the passing of 87-year-old Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Though uh, tributes to Ginsburg's supposed legacy as a champion of women's rights have flooded news stations and social media feeds, other commentators from the African and indigenous communities have pointed out that Ginsburg's record as a Supreme Court Justice holds a different meaning for the colonized and oppressed than it does for the women of the white oppressor nation population. Joining us to sum up the life and death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is Amanda Carlozzi, a member of the African People's Solidarity Committee and the vice chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. So um, <clears throat> joining us also, as usual, is comrade Jesse Neville, our engineer and co-host. So Uhuru, Amanda, and Jesse. Uhuru, Jamie, good to be here. Uhuru, Jamie, glad to be here as well. Thrilled that you could join us today. So let's kick off this discussion about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Amanda, could you tell us what, what was your response to the news of Ginsburg's passing? Uhuru, Jamie. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the program. And I want to say that my response to the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg was more of a critical response to the showering of praise that was coming from other white people. And that's because of the fact that I am a member of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, and I organize under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party and Sharon Amanjitella. So I was looking at this from the perspective of solidarity with colonized peoples. And I salute the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party for forming the Solidarity Movement, which makes it possible for us as white people to see the world through the eyes of the African working class. 
When you look at the Supreme Court through the eyes of the African working class, it's impossible to see it as anything but an instrument of colonial capitalist oppression and domination of Africans, indigenous and colonized peoples. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was no exception. During this period of African resistance to colonial police terror, let's take a look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg's record as it relates to her support of police violence. Um, and this is gonna be from an article published on the World Socialist website. So I quote, in 2014, Ginsburg joined a nine to zero unanimous Supreme Court decision granting qualified immunity to the police officers who killed Donald Rickard and Kelly Allen. Police had attempted to pull over Donald Rickard in July 2004 because he had only one working taillight. Rickard unsuccessfully attempted to flee, his car eventually spinning out into a parking lot where police tried to box him in with their cruisers. When Rickard maneuvered his car in an effort to drive away, police opened fire with a hail of 15 bullets. In May 2014, the Supreme Court unanimously granted qualified immunity to the police and Rickard's daughter's case was thrown out of court without a trial. In the context of already endemic police brutality, the decision was a green light for more police killings. Together with supposed progressive icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the unanimous decision was also joined by Obama appointees Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. In addition to the Rickard case, Ginsburg joined a decision in 2014 expanding the doctrine of qualified immunity from police to paid agents of the state who are not full-time employees, and in 2017 signed off on a decision permitting Donald Trump's anti-Muslim travel bans to go into effect. Wow, this, this is uh, you know, a difficult truth. It's really revealing, Amanda. One thing that uh, every eulogy to Ginsburg emphasizes is her commitment to women's rights. She is hailed as, quote, a feminist icon. What are your thoughts on that? Who, Jamie? Well, what I've learned from working under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party is that the white feminist movement has historically been a movement to secure equality on the pedestal of imperialism for white women to be equal to white men in benefiting from the stolen resources of African and colonized peoples. Sherwin Penny Hess did a study on this a month ago entitled White Women's Liberation Founded on Colonial Oppression of African People. The white women's movement has always been a movement to further integrate white women into the imperialist system. And often this has represented itself in the form of a struggle by white women to join the military, become police officers, or even to become Supreme Court justices for that matter. And as Yejide Ormila of the Nation African National Women's Organization has stated many times, there's no such thing as women in general. There's women of the oppressor nation, and then there's women of the oppressed nations. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy as a feminist icon perfectly personifies the opportunism of white bourgeois feminism. The case that's most often held up as her great accomplishment of famous 1996 Supreme Court opinion permitting women to attend the traditionally all men's Virginia military institutes known as uh, the West Point of the South. Students here would salute the Confederate flag, pay their respects to the tomb of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, and now, thanks to Ginsburg, white women can be trained at the VMI to go off to Arab and African countries to slaughter children, women, and men 
just like white men have always done. And is that really a victory for women's liberation? Wow, these, these are such important questions. We're, we're speaking with Amanda Carlozzi of the African People's Solidarity Committee. Um, really great to have you here, Amanda. Jesse Neville um, of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Uhuru, could you, could you share your thoughts on this? I really appreciate this discussion, and I just want to thank uh, you, Jamie, as well as Comrade Amanda, for the insightful observations that have been made up to this point. And I want to really join in saluting and appreciating Chairman Amalia Shatella and the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party and absolutely echo and unite with what Amanda said, that my, my ability to make sense of what is going on right now is definitely made possible by the fact that I am working under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party and have the honor and the ability and the opportunity, as all of us do, to look at the world through the analysis of Chairman Omalia Shatella, the worldview of African internationalism, the revolutionary African working class. And I'm sure that if I did not have this perspective of the African working class, that um, I would probably accept the perspective promoted by the bourgeois media in the way that they have summed up the legacy of uh, this particular Supreme Court justice. Uh, one thing that I saw um, being put forward as, as an example of the stance of Ruth Bader Ginsburg was her position on Colin Kaepernick. Um, I thought this was worth bringing up. Uh, of Colin Kaepernick and others who did similar acts of protest to police violence against African people in this country, Ruth Bader Ginsburg went on the record as saying that she found them, quote, dumb and disrespectful. She said, I would have the same answer if you asked me about flag burning. I think it's a terrible thing to do, but I wouldn't lock a person up for doing it. I would point out how ridiculous it seems to me to do such an act. Kaepernick responded by saying that he was disappointed to hear a Supreme Court justice call a protest against injustices and oppression stupid and dumb. He said, I was reading an article and it refers to white critique of black protest and how they tried to delegitimize it by calling it idiotic, dumb, stupid, things of that nature, so they can sidestep the real issue. As I was reading that, I saw more and more how uh, truth, how this was been approached by people in power and white people in power in particular. That was Colin Kaepernick responding to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, if they want to be stupid, there's no law that should be preventative. If they want to be arrogant, there's no law that prevents them from that. What I do take issue with is the point of view they are expressing when they do that. So that is also very, very revealing. It really is, Jesse. I just, I, I just wanted to, to point out how, how shocking that is in, in the, you know, if, if this is supposed to be this progressive hero, um, you would think that you would have a different commentary on the oppression of African people than what we're hearing from, you know, Jared Kushner, uh, Trump's son-in-law, who I believe referred to the, the current protests we're seeing around Jacob Blake. Um, you know, like when we saw the, the various N NBA teams um, postpone or cancel their games in, in protest of the shooting of Jacob Blake and other African people. He called it silly yeah. and dumb. Yeah. So it's, it's the same arrogant, dismissive attitude from white power. It is, it is. And, and calling it dumb is an attack on African people and, and an assumption of inferior intelligence on the part of mm -hmm. African people that has always been a, a classic uh, component of white nationalist ideology. So not surprising uh, 
at all in that sense. And, you know, one thing that was, in, in my opinion, even more revealing, Jamie and Amanda, uh, that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said a year or so after she made those remarks, she apologized for saying that. She said, I shouldn't have said those things. And then she said, I didn't really know why they were protesting at the time. Wow. I, I didn't really know what it was about. I hadn't really paid that much attention. So this was, of course, after the murder of Trayvon Martin, after the murder of Mike Brown, massive protests throughout the country. But apparently the Supreme Court justice uh, hadn't, hadn't heard about it. Anyway, so another issue that is of significance is the question of uh, indigenous people. And I mean, I just want to make a little disclaimer here. Uh, there's no Supreme Court ruling that could possibly be held up as an example of unity with the indigenous people because the mere existence of the Supreme Court is an institutionalization of the theft of land from the indigenous people, the destruction of their sovereignty over their own land, and the creation of colonial settler institutions of government that are designed to rob the indigenous people of any authority over their own land. So I uh, just wanted to say that. However, it is notable that there's a particularly notorious case where Ruth Bader Ginsburg used all of her powers of, of eloquence to articulate why the indigenous people should have no control whatsoever over their land from her point of view. The Oneida Indian Nation uh, in the year 2005, I believe, was this ruling. The case was brought to the Supreme Court because the Oneida Indian Nation had purchased on free market lands within the small city of Sherrill, New York in, 70, in 1997 and 1998, lands which, which had once been part of their 300,000 acre reservation or concentration camp. The state of New York had acquired those lands in the early 19th century in a series of transactions that clearly violated the terms of the Federal, federal Indian Trade and Intercourse Acts, which stated that pur purchases of Indian land without a federal commissioner present and without subsequent ratification by the Senate were null and void and of no effect. Translation, they stole it, just like they stole everything else, okay? Um, with some cash from gaming operations, the Oneidas purchased some of those lands back. So they started reclaiming parcel by parcel some of the land which had been taken from them. And then they asserted their rights as a sovereign nation by refusing to pay taxes to the city of Sherrill. So the town began, began foreclosure proceedings against them. The federal district court and then the circuit court uh, ruled in their favor ruled in the favor of the indigenous people. These rulings were indeed entirely unsurprising. Then came the Supreme Court and the quote unquote, and I'm using this facetiously, the notorious RBG as, as uh, the white liberals, liberal media has referred to her. And this is what uh, Ginsburg wrote, writing for the 8-1 majority, she shot the Oneidas down, quote, Given the long-standing non-Indian character of the area and its inhabitants, the regulatory authority constantly exercised by New York State and its counties and towns, and the Oneida's long delay in seeking judicial relief against parties other than the United States, we hold that the tribe cannot unilaterally 
revive its ancient sovereignty in whole or in part over the parcels at issue. Wow. In other words, get over it, indigenous people. The white people have been there for too long. It's not your land anymore. Too much time has passed and you got to just get over it. That was basically the position of the Supreme Court as, as articulated by the author of their majority opinion, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She said, any remedy now after the passage of time would be, would be too disruptive. It would not be fair to the non-Indian landowners in the region who bought their land, she suggested in good faith. Thus, the court must prevent, and she, these are Ruth Bader Ginsburg's words, the court must prevent, quote, the tribe from rekindling the embers of sovereignty that long ago grew cold. Whew. Thank you, Jesse. You know, it, it, she almost sounds like a movie villain. Yep. I, I would say if I didn't know how, how vile colonialism is. You know, finally, we'd like to bring the discussion to a close by focusing on, on a topic that many associated with Ginsburg or many associate with Ginsburg, which is a woman's right to choose as exemplified in circumstances surrounding the Roe versus Wade ruling. Amanda, could you speak to this? True, Jamie. Yes, thank you. And I you know, really appreciate what was brought up by Jesse as well. So with the women's right to choose, this is important. But as the African People's Socialist Party has said, this issue has a different meaning for colonized women and colonized people in general. And during the time that Roe v. Wade granted mostly white women the right to choose in the 1970s, approximately 25,000 indigenous women were forcibly sterilized by the U.S. government. And that's between 25 and 50% of the female population. And this has not ended, it's ongoing. And I would like to draw our attention to a recent news report that was released regarding the forced removal of uteruses from indigenous colonized women held in detention camps by ICE. Yeah, we, we have that news clip. Let's take a listen. Yesterday, we learned about a whistleblower, a nurse, uh, working at a Georgia Immigration and Customs Enforcement ICE facility, leveling honestly ghastly allegations, chief among them, that women in that facility, migrant women, say that a doctor was performing unauthorized hysterectomies on immigrant women detained at that facility, which again is privately run. Now you might have seen this story uh, zipping around social media, understandably, and the allegations come from a formal complaint that was actually filed with the watchdog at the Department of Homeland Security. And the whistleblower is on the record, is named. Her name is Dawn Wooten. Uh, she was employed by that detention center. And along with those unauthorized hysterectomies, the complaint also alleges the facility lacked protection against coronavirus for detained immigrants, and that detainees suffer from a general lack of medical care. We've been chasing this story all day along with some of my colleagues here at NBC. Tonight, we can report a lawyer named Benjamin Osorio representing women at that very facility told NBC News that indeed two of his clients received hysterectomies they believe may have been unnecessary. And tonight, we here on All In spoke with another attorney who represents two different women who claim they also had unnecessary hysterectomies while detained at this facility. That lawyer tells us that as many as 15 immigrant women were given full or partial hysterectomies or other procedures for which no medical indication existed. 
Now, we reached out to ICE with these accusations. They sent us a long statement disputing these allegations and the implication that detainees are used for experimental medical procedures. They do say an independent office will investigate these claims. ICE also says that since 2018, only two individuals at the facility were referred to certified credential medical professionals for hysterectomies. Of course, the referred is the question here. I should also tell you, NBC has also reached out to the private company that runs this facility. While they are not commenting on the specific allegations, they say they have a strict zero tolerance policy for any kind of inappropriate behavior at their facilities, and they refute any allegations of misconduct. Now, her, the nurse behind that whistleblower complaint who got this all started is Don Wooten, and her lawyer, John Witte, join me now. Don Wooten and John Witte, it's great to have you both. Thank you very much. Um, Ms. Wooten, I want to start with you and, and just ask you to tell us what, what you did. What was your job at this facility? When did you start working there? I was first employed at Irwin County Detention Center in 2010. I've been to this facility three on three different occasions. Um, I returned in 2014, worked until 2016, um, came back in 2019. Um, I was a nurse there, a medication nurse. I worked 6A to 6P. We did total detainee and total inmate care were my responsibilities there. You talk about in the complaint uh, a hearing from women who are detained there, talking about a specific doctor uh, performing hysterectomies, um, referring to him as a uterus collector. Tell us about how you heard about this doctor and what women said about their experiences with him. You have um, detained women. I had several detained women on numerous occasions that would come to me and say, "Miss Wooten." I had a hysterectomy. Um, why? I had no answers as to why they had those procedures. Um, and one lady walked up to me here this last time around between October of 19 until July the 2nd. And she said, what is he? Is he the uterus collector? Does he collect uteruses? And I asked her, what does she mean? And she says, everybody that I talked to has had a hysterectomy and you just don't know what to say. I mean, I don't, I don't have a answer for why that they would come to me and they would say, is he the uterus collector? Would you describe, how would you describe the standard of care, the general uh, s sort of medical environment in which these, these migrants uh, were detained? The standard of care was, it wasn't timely all the time. They would have a procedure to where they would fill out forms to be seen. Those forms would be shredded. Um, they would be told in area instances that, you know, there's nothing going on with them, just on numerous occasions. And as a human, you just don't treat people inhumane. I have a title as a licensed practical nurse, and I protect my title with dignity to where I was raised by you treat people as you want to be treated. Um, the sanitation, especially during COVID, the sanitation was horrible. We didn't have anything to sanitize with. We didn't have the proper PPE. So they didn't have the proper PPE. They didn't have anything to sanitize with while they were down in the dorms as well. And when you ask, 
you would be reprimanded. Did you have cases of COVID in that facility? What were the steps taken to deal with it uh, as the outbreak uh, in the country happened? When we first had the first case of COVID there in the facility, it was COVID is not here in the facility. Then we had another case and it was like COVID was not here in the facility. We had several more cases and it was like COVID was not here in the facility. You know, there was not a proper separation of those detainees whenever they come in. You know, there's a 14 day incubation period. You know, they weren't separated. You know, whenever you question and then you didn't have the proper PPE, I admit I refuse. I have sickle cell. I have kids that have underlying conditions as well. They're asthmatics. So the protocol was not being followed. It was not properly reported to the health department. It was not properly reported to the CDC, nor was it properly reported to LaSalle. It's, it's, that was just overwhelming. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really difficult not, not to be infuriated um, by this. And, and I, I think we should be. Um, Jesse, I, this is this is for for, for me. Um, it's it's difficult not to think of all the stories, um, as, as much as we know about this country of of what we heard in the the German Holocaust with um, people like Dr. Mengele. Do you want to comment on that? Uh, definitely, and and it's interesting because I saw an, an article, Jamie, uh, in a Jewish newspaper, which uh, was pointing out that after the news of the forced uh, hysterectomies, which is genocide, just to be absolutely clear, this is genocide. Mm -hmm. colonized people. Um, the the word Mangala started trending on Twitter, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised to see a Jewish newspaper actually uh, spoke out against that and said, uh, "Mangala, you don't have to go all the way to Germany. Where do you think the Germans got it from? They got it from the United States. They learned it from the United States. The the medical torture of Africans, indigenous people, colonized people, uh, the template for that is right here in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And um, as some examples of that, there's an article that was in The Intercept uh, documenting this history of forced sterilization policies aimed at um, African and indigenous women. Uh, and, and going back to, you know, J. Marion Sims, who Chairwoman Penny has talked about on this show before, this is the white man referred to as the father of modern gynecology who conducted experiments on enslaved African women without anesthesia and was nonetheless celebrated in the 19th century. There are statues of him uh, in St. Louis. There's a, a section of the medical, a medical school that is named for him. Uh, yeah. Only now are some of them being taken down. And, uh, you know, this is the whole medical field. It, it was not an aberration. It's not something that was just happening on the sidelines. The entire colonial medical establishment was forged in the blood of African people. And it's, it's so important to say that. I really appreciate that, Jesse, because you know, a, a lot of people can look at things like that and say, well, there was you know, the Tuskegee experiments here, maybe, but J. Marion Sims really represents how integral genocide and torture was to the colonial medical system and modern, modern medicine. Like if, if I'm not mistaken, J. Marion Sims um, his, uh, the statue of him that's in was in Central Park. I'm, I'm not sure if it's there uh, still. I think they're 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 moving it, but um, it, it was the first statue of a medical doctor in the city, if I'm not mistaken. 
Right. And so it, that, that just really speaks to how, how profoundly this, this shaped everything we understand about modern medicine. Please go on. That's exactly right, Jamie. And there is a long history of what they refer to as eugenics programs, which have been aimed at African indigenous women. And uh, they were an explicit part of US policy in the 20th century. In fact, 20, uh, 32 states maintained federally funded eugenics boards tasked with ordering the sterilizations of women and sometimes men deemed, quote, undesirable. Tens of thousands of forced sterilizations were carried out throughout the US. California had something called the Asexualization Act, which led to 20,000 men and women losing reproductive capacity. Now here's a quote from Adolf Hitler. He said, today there is one state in which at least weak beginnings towards a better conception of citizenship are noticeable. Of course, it is not our model German Republic, but the United States. And a, a 1965 survey found that a staggering one third of women from Puerto Rico between 20 and 49 years old had been sterilized as a result of US population control programs enforced on the territory. So common were coerced sterilizations in the American South that they became referred to as Mississippi appendic appendectomies. Hold on a second, appendectomies. The extent to which these practices fit within a genocidal uh, system cannot be underestimated. And between 1930 to 1970, 65% of the 7,600 plus sterilizations ordered by the state of California were carried out against African women. Um, so, I mean, this is the reality of colonialism in this country, the reality of, of parasitic capitalism built on the genocide and violence against African people. And it's, there's a direct continuity from the uh, white settlers in California who ripped the you know, uh, uteruses out of the bodies of indigenous women and displayed them as prizes as they carried out the genocidal slaughter of the indigenous people and the you know, ongoing uh, torture and, and violence of African, of African indigenous women carried out uh, under the banner of, of medicine. Uh, there's, there's no difference. And um, yeah, so I, I think this is really important and, and I appreciate that you know, we're able to discuss this and that this never ended. It is ongoing as recently as 2013, uh, an investigation found that at least 148 inmates in two California prisons were sterilized between 2006, 2020. Many of the women said they were coerced into the procedure. So it never ended, it is ongoing, it is genocide. Wow, wow. And that's why we must join the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. This is colonial genocide. Colonialism has got to be destroyed and white people, including white women, must stand in solidarity with African people and indigenous people fighting for black power. And that's why we must, must march preparations to African people on October 17th. Uhuru, um, Jesse, Amanda, I, I just wanna thank both of you for for joining us for this uh this segment it's it's so important that we speak honestly about what's happening it's 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 so important that, that we put this out there and I, I i really hope 
Amanda, you'd, you'd be willing to, to join us again on the show. Is, is there anything else that I, either of you would like to, to say before we close this section? Uhuru, I just unite with what Amanda said. White people who are listening to this, if we're outraged, if we're disgusted, we have to take action. We have to join the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, get organized, go beyond protest, go beyond self-serving anti-racist workshops that keep our ideas, feelings, and attitudes in the center. Join the anti-colonial struggle, stand in solidarity with African and indigenous people and their struggle to take power over their own lives. That is the only thing that will put an end to this brutal, unspeakable torture and violence that is carried out in our name and in our presumed interests against colonized people every single day. It has to end, it has to end, and we have to do our part in forwarding the struggle of African and colonized people everywhere to be free and self-determining. Um, that is the only way there will ever be genuine peace on this planet. So I just unite with that. We have to join Uhuru Solidarity Movement and march for reparations to African people on October 17th in cities across the US. And um, Jesse, if I'm not mistaken, if people wanna get more information about that march, they can go to uhurusolidarity.org slash march. That's uhurusolidarity.org slash march. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Thank you, Jamie. Fantastic. Jesse Neville, Amanda Carlozzi, thank you for joining us on Reparations in Action. Let's go to a musical break. regular segment on the struggle to win reparations from the moneyed sector of parasitic capitalism. Make Wall Street pay reparations is the name of the campaign. Jesse, what's the latest? Uhuru, Jamie. Well, I was planning to talk about a recent report that came out regarding Bank of America's uh, fund that they've established towards so-called racial equality in the aftermath of the George Floyd rebellions. Um, but I'm just seeing some breaking news that I wanted to uh, report on, if that's all right with you. Please. So, Jamie, I'm sure you saw the, the news of uh, Governor Ron DeSantis's uh, state legislation that he's proposing to actually withhold funding from cities or jurisdictions that cut law enforcement budgets. And he also announced a new list of criminal offenses and increased penalties for protesters 
clearly a counterinsurgent assault on the courageous African resistance that swept the state of Florida as well as the entire country. Mm -hmm. um, Rick Kreisman has responded, uh, the mayor of St. Petersburg, Florida. So I wanted to just uh, let you know how he has responded to this. Uh, so this was reported in the St. Pete Catalyst. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is backing proposed st state legislation to withhold funding from cities or jurisdictions that cut law enforcement budgets. He said, if you defund the police, then the state will defund any grant or aid coming to you. And that applies to any municipality in the state of Florida. DeSantis, an ally of President Donald Trump, said during a news conference Monday in Winter Haven. Uh, a spokesman for Mayor Rick Kreisman of St. Petersburg responded in an email to the St. Petersburg Catalyst. The mayor isn't concerned with Trumpian threats and gimmicks. Also, DeSantis's threat would not impact St. Pete because we increased our police budget. Wow. There it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and they claim that the city is using city funding, the police department is using city funding to uh, match a grant to implement a pilot program that will augment the police department by retaining a social service agency to respond to nonviolent calls for service. This program called the Community Assistance Liaison Program doesn't defund the police department, but simply shifts funds, a police department spokeswoman said. The city is also spending additional funds on body cameras for the police department. The legislation DeSantis backs also calls for penalties for protests where authorities say violence or vandalism has occurred. So um, I, I think this is interesting because honestly, as we've talked about on this show before, the call for defunding of the police in, in actuality has always really meant the shifting of funds. So the, the city of St. Petersburg is being a little bit more honest that, uh, that that's what's going on. Um, but that has been the case, generally speaking, and that's why the International People's Democratic Uhura Movement has always said that the struggle is for Black community control of the police, the struggle of African people to achieve the democratic right to hire, fire, train, control, discipline the police who operate in their communities, something which will actually begin to erode and deconstruct the colonial relationship that the police have with the African community um, as a colonial military occupation force inside of the African community, which as we know is not what the police do in our communities, in the white communities. Generally speaking, uh, the police have a totally different relationship to our communities than they do in the African community. In, in our communities, um, the police are generally you know, used to respond to uh, non-emergency type things and social service agency type things and um, you know, the, the classic uh, kind of cliche of, you know, helping people across the street, uh, things of that nature, um, serve and protect, uh, whereas in the African community, it's a completely different experience. And as the crisis of imperialism has uh, really deepened, you have seen white people experiencing the, the brutality of the police to some extent, you know, facing, um, you know, police violence at some of the protests and things like that. But um, the point is not to try to equate ourselves to African people and to try to say we're all in this together and the problem is just police brutality in general. 
Right. Um, you know, we have to look at this as an opportunity to say, okay, well, this is just a measure of what African people have had to deal with ongoing, even when they're not protesting all the right. time, every single day for generations. And that's why, and, yeah, go ahead. No, I just, I'm just really enthusiastically agreeing with you, Jesse. It's, I, I think it's so important to, to understand that right now, that when we see things like the uh, older white guy, I think that was in Buffalo um, during a protest and, and, and the uh, um, people in, in the Lafayette Park in DC when they came through with the tear gas. We, we saw you know pe Africans and, and white people and, and, and others getting brutalized. We saw the white guy get cracked over the head um, thrown to the ground, and you know I believe he's sustained long-term disability from that. So, we, but it's no coincidence that these things happen. That, that we see. Uh, um, I saw a white journalist, or right? she might have been Asian, um, being brutalized by cops in in L.A. Uh, just a week ago around the the, the shooting of, of of the cops, the you know um, the resistance that's happening. And the, the open brutalization of even white protesters is happening as the cops have become, as the colonial state has become absolutely weaponized and in your face in its assault of African people, right? That it, it's, it's, it becomes weaponized like that because that's what it has always done to African people. And if there are white people in the way protesting, it will mow them down too. But that's, like you said, it's not a question of we're all in the same, we all occupy the same place in this colonial structure and it's, it's just oppressing us all in general. So I, yeah, I, I just really appreciate that. I think people should pay attention to that. Agreed. So on the subject of the money sector, Jamie, um, so there's a recent report, this was published in Business Wire, and this is regarding something that we've talked about on this show before, which is that after the uprisings began in African communities across the country and, and the world, really, um, in response to the brutal murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Bank of America, along with several other major banks and corporations, um, announced that they would be su uh, supporting racial equality by making a $1 billion four-year commitment uh, to advance racial equality and economic opportunity. So this report, that was published um, just a few days ago, details the, where the first round of money is going to. And it, it totals about $300 million, which they claim 25 million is going to support of jobs initiative, $25 million in support of community outreach and initiatives, 50 million to minority depository institutions, and 200 million, million to minority entrepreneurs, businesses, and funds. Uh, some of the investment details include um, community colleges, HBCUs, uh, some other uh, MDI investment firms. Um, uh, you know, so it's it's very unspecific. I was I was actually I don't know why I was surprised. I shouldn't really be surprised by anything like this anymore. But I was a little surprised that they they didn't name a single recipient of where the money is going. Um, mm -hmm. Very very unaccountable. Um, and I think the point that, you know, Chairman Amalia Shetela and the African People's Socialist Party has been making all along is that they don't get to define what reparations looks like and where reparations should go. That's not how right. reparations works. The oppressor, the profiteer of your oppression doesn't get to decide how that oppression is going to be repaired. Um, the oppressed decides that. And mm -hmm. what the oppressed have decided is that if these companies 
these corporations, these banks are willing to do something that will begin to approximate atonement and reparations for the crimes against African people, which they have all been involved in and which they have all profited to the trillions from, then they must direct their reparations towards the black power blueprint in St. Louis, which is a blueprint for economic prosperity for African people everywhere. It's bigger than St. Louis, but it's important that it's happening in St. Louis because St. Louis is one of the key political battlegrounds between the African anti-colonial struggle and the, the dying but not yet dead forces of white power and gentrification. Uh, of course, also the place where this most recent wave of the new emergence of the Black Liberation Movement began after the murder of Mike Brown. So St. Louis is, is significant in many different ways, but it is also just the beginning. It's a blueprint for the whole country, for the whole world. And the Black Power Blueprint is different from just some kind of like, you know, sending a scholarship fund to a college or something like that, because the Black Power Blueprint is a project, as Chairman Amalia Hitella said, that is designed to negate the influence of the banks and the corporations over the lives of African people. That is why they must send their reparations directly to this project. It's an anti-colonial campaign. It's an anti-colonial project. And that's why the Uhuru Solidarity Movement is out every single day building a movement under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party to win white people to unite with the demand for Bank of America and Wall Street to pay reparations to the Black Power Blueprint. Our campaign is called Make Wall Street Pay Reparations. People can join by, by going to wallstreetreparations.com, sign up, get involved, march with us on October 17th, and beyond marching, get organized under the leadership of the African Revolution because this campaign is not going to stop until we start to see some money flowing in the direction of the Black Power Blueprint. And it's not gonna stop then either. It's gonna keep going and keep deepening because all of it belongs to African people and all of it must go back. Fantastic. It's, it's really outrageous um, the, the things that this system will do to buy time, to um, hold on to its power and, and placate, you know, the, the, the fact that Bank of America is claiming that it wants to help the black community now, that it wants to, um, you know, support black businesses, black entrepreneurs. This, this is not some spontaneous move out of, out of the, the kindness of, of the hearts of, of the CEO of, of Bank of America, of, of, the, of the ruling class. This, it, it, it seems to me this, this has to be, to some extent, a response to the campaign that you're waging, that, that they're coming out and, and, and saying, we're, we're gonna make a commitment to black entrepreneurs, to the black community. Absolutely, and, and there's been a number of examples of that. In fact, um, before, before the uprisings began, uh, we were out, you know, as per the direction and leadership of Chairman Amalia Shetela and the African People's Socialist Party, we were out in front of Chase Bank uh, in both Boston and New York. In fact, we had comrades that were out in front of the Chase Bank CEO, Jamie Dimon's house in New York, demanding reparations. And this was at a time when it was specifically in response to the COVID-19 colonial virus pandemic and the way in which these banks and the ruling elite billionaires in this country have hoarded the wealth, have, have just concentrated more and more of the wealth stolen from African people into their hands, where 
you know, Jeff Bezos has what, like tripled his net worth during the COVID-19 pandemic. And there are now 10 billionaires in this country who collectively possess over a trillion dollars. This is at a time when, you know, millions of people are facing eviction and starvation, and mm -hmm. especially in the African community. And indigenous people are being, you know, put in detention camps and having hysterectomies imposed on them. So mm -hmm. this is the colonial reality inside this country. And that's why we were out there. And it was interesting because within, literally within 72 hours of the demonstrations that were held in front of Jamie Dimon's house, this guy stumbled into his annual shareholders meeting and started off his speech with a, a statement about why Chase Bank has to do more to support uh, the black community and the struggle for justice and economic, uh, you know, justice, social and economic justice for the black community. So obviously that was in response to the demonstrations that had just taken place. And the thing is, you know, we're glad to hear them say that, but we want them to put their money where their mouth is. And, uh, and that means, you know, turn it over as reparations to the Black Power Blueprint. Yes, I, I really appreciate how the, um, the, the specifics, the nailing them down, forcing them to make the commitment to the anti-colonial economy. It's, it's such, a, such a bold plan and it's so exciting to see these ruling class structures have to respond have to move in this direction, have to speak to the question of the oppression of African people. And you know, it reminds me of what Chairman Amalia Shatella has said several times about power, power being the ultimate aphrodisiac, that uh, power can transform yesterday's uh, frothing at the mouth racist, I believe, to paraphrase, into tomorrow's sycophant. So um, in, in my opinion, it seems like we're watching Bank of America slowly, clumsily, try to move in that direction of the fawning sycophant as, as they uh, get more specific. Okay, now we're giving money to the black community. It's specifically black entrepreneurs. Which, 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 or which uh, economic centers in the black community? And the black power blueprint is right there. Oh, for real. Absolutely. So yeah, I just, um, again, want to let people know that you, know, you can get off the sidelines. You can get involved, you can join. You can bring your passion for, for justice to this movement because this is the first opportunity we've had to really take responsibility for the fact that as white people historically, we have not taken on our ruling class. We have sided right. with them. We have aspired to be them. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an old quote that the reason why uh, socialism never took root in America is because uh, you know, poor Americans see themselves as, you know, as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And of course, uh, that, is, that is true for white Americans that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we, we have historically seen ourselves as, um, you know, hopefully someday achieving the level of wealth as our ruling class. We idolize them, we worship them. And that day is over. We are turning our backs on the ruling class. They are the most hated ruling class on the planet Earth by uh, African and, and oppressed peoples everywhere, and they are our enemy too. And the way that we prove that is by joining under the leadership of the African Revolution to wage genuine anti-colonial class struggle with the white ruling class, which has reparations in the center as a revolutionary demand. So join the March for Reparations on October 17th. Join the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. That's fantastic, Jesse. I, I know we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I, I just wanted to point out, you know, that 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 whole question of taking on 
genuine um, class struggle. You, you can see it in what you just mentioned at the top of this segment about uh, DeSantis versus Christman. Look at them. They're both racing to be the good white cop on the block. And it reminds me of like what we're seeing between Biden and Trump. When Trump calls Biden the leader of the left-wing mob and he gets up there at the podium and says, do I look like a left-wing radical? Well, no, you don't. And uh, Rick Christman doesn't look like a progressive either. I think what that looks like is standing up for reparations to the African community under the leadership of the African community. Jesse Neville, I really thank you for, for joining us on the show today. This has been fantastic. Um, I want to let everyone know, uh, remind you that the March for Reparations is on October 17th, 2020 in cities across the United States. You can check out a new video at uhurusolidarity.org slash march. On September 30th, the 44th anniversary of the founding of the African People's Solidarity Committee is happening. You can register for a dynamic online event featuring a discussion with Chairman Omali Eshatella and African People's Solidarity Committee Chairwoman Penny Hess called the African Revolution Behind Enemy Lines. You can register on Zoom at tinyurl.com slash APSC44. That's tinyurl.com slash APSC44. And Omali taught me on Sundays, 8 a.m. on Chairman Omali Eshatella's Facebook page and youtube.com slash The Burning Spear. That's youtube.com slash The Burning Spear, 8 a.m. Sundays. Don't miss these studies with Chairman Omali Eshatella, founder and leader of the African People's Socialist Party. Listen to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Right here, Black Power 96.3 WBPU LP, St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. You can also follow us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. And uh, Jesse, I wanted to, to remind everyone that next week, we're going to have the honor of interviewing Secretary General of the African Socialist International, member of the African People's Socialist Party, Luezi Kinshasa. So please stay tuned for that really special show next week. We're very much looking forward to hearing from Secretary General Luizi Kinshasa. Jesse, thanks for joining us on Reparations in Action. Thanks to Amanda Carlozzi. Thanks to the African People's Education and Defense Fund and Black Power 96.3 WBPU LP in St. Petersburg. This has been Reparations in Action. My name is Jamie Simpson. We'll talk to you next week.